Welcome once again to In Focus. I'm Marcus Stead, and my guest today is one of Wales's leading rugby writers and analysts, Geraint Powell. In this podcast, we aim to make sense of where club and regional rugby has gone wrong, both in Wales and beyond. This promises to be a fascinating discussion, and I, for one, am really looking forward to it. Do stay with us. Well, Geraint, thank you for joining me. I think the best place to start with this is by us both introducing ourselves, talking about what we are and what we're not, in effect. So, first of all, Geraint, tell us a little bit about your involvement in rugby and your background. Um, oh, hi, Marcus. Um, thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, I'm a rugby blogger and I do some writing also for the Die Sport website run by Graham Thomas. Um, I'm supporter-wise. Um, I'm a enthusiastic Ponypool supporter and a more reluctant Dragon supporter, given the problems <laughs> we'll discuss um, mm. over the uh, course of this uh, podcast. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's my major background. I, I lived overseas at times in South Africa, New Zealand, so I, and I spent much of my working life in London. So I've got a, perhaps a wider rugby perspective most people in the South Wales rugby um, goldfish bowls. Um, I suddenly do years of a podcast like Rugby 365 in Cape Town. I do some stuff for them and various hours. Like I've done one for Jamie um, Jamie Beardmore. Um, but I do limit my podcasts because generally I tend to find, especially worth discussing the structures of Welsh rugby, sometimes they can generate more heat talking about Welsh rugby than statues of Southern African diamond magnets or Johnny Reb generals or Bristolian <laughs> directors or the, the Stuart um, Royal African Company. But that's where it is. So I limit these chats, but uh, it's nice to speak today. And uh, over to you and what you want to talk to me about. Thank you, Geraint. So you've got quite quite a broad background then and a wide range of experiences. And, and you're not just looking at it from a parochial Welsh viewpoint, which is one of the reasons yeah. I wanted to speak to you. We can put the, the, the issues into some context. I'll just say a little bit about myself in a rugby context. I am not involved in rugby journalism day to day. I'm a full time freelance journalist, but I'm not day to day involved in rugby. My main involvement in rugby. Well, I've done two things, really. Uh, I wrote a book on Brian O'Driscoll, a bio- an unofficial biography. Um, I, I've done when did I first write now? The first one was in 2008, and it's been updated three times since. It topped the rugby charts on Amazon twice. The most recent one was just before he retired um, from international rugby. Um, so there was that. That that was something I was heavily involved in, obviously. And I, I've talked about his legacy on the UK, Welsh, and indeed world media. And also, I worked behind the scenes on um, Scrum 5 on the radio, on Radio Wales, in about 2007, 2008, and 2007 to 2008 I worked more broadly behind the scenes on Radio Wales Sport but I think it's also important to say what I'm not I'm not part of the Welsh rugby media clique if you like I don't attend any award ceremonies I don't attend any dinners or anything like that and um, so I've got a sort of independence and a distance yes I've got contacts I've got good friends in rugby but I don't owe them anything so far as my living goes so I can probably speak more freely than certain other people can in the Welsh media so the purpose then of this discussion is that we know that Welsh regional rugby and club rugby is not in a good place at the moment and we're going to try and work out what's gone wrong and how to put things right in a conversational way and let's start then Let's take 1995 as a turning point, because that was the year rugby went professional. And I was, what, 11 years old at that particular time. And the transition has been a difficult one, not just in Wales, but across the Northern Hemisphere. 
Uh, Welsh clubs, which evolved into the Welsh regions, have consistently underperformed throughout the history of European competitions. And I remember when I was 11 years of age, I watched the inaugural Heineken Cup final, which was only shown on HTV Wales. Um, it wasn't even shown on network UK television, I don't think, where Toulouse beat Cardiff 21-18. Um, that was in 1996. And only once since then has a Welsh region ever reached the European final. And that's when the Cardiff Blues beat Gloucester by a single point to win the second tier European Challenge Cup two years ago. But I think back to how things were before 1995 when I was very young. And I think back to the days of Sunday afternoons watching rugby special Wales on BBC Wales with Alan Wilkins and Eddie Butler. And I always remember they used to send cameras even to lower league games. And there was a sort of a real connection, particularly between Valley communities and the fans. And I think, first of all, we'll talk in more depth about how the regions came about and what happened. But in terms of that, that real connection I felt as a young child between, you know, the smaller towns in the valleys, they'd get their moments on television. They were talked about on television. They had there was lots of written press in those days as well. That connection between community and fans and club has been lost now. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's 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 been a, it's a major talking point that it's no longer rugby in the community in a sense. Um, certainly at the top flight, I think I think the Blues actually have won the second tier competition of Europe twice. I think they, I think they won it about a decade ago as well. Because the old Cardiff RFC that I remember, wouldn't you wouldn't see them in plate competitions. Um, so that, that just shows it. I think the start of this, you've got to go back five years before 1995. I remember I was sort of finishing my master's degree sort of dissertation in the summer of 1995 down in Southampton when it all suddenly happened. But the big to understand what's gone wrong and where you got to go back to 1990. But before 1990, you had sort of the old 18 first class clubs, 19 if you include London Welsh. And they were like ring fenced, and that was the system. And most people, even at a second class club, they also would, even most in the second class club would lean towards a first class club. And in 1990, we ended that. It needed reform because some of those clubs were on borrowed time, like Panarf had been struggling for many years. South Wales Police, for obvious reasons, had very few fans. So change was coming, but we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and we went from sort of 18 clubs only, to every club could aspire. Mm. And then in 1995, we had the big sort of a, the big change where um, in, in South Africa, it effectively gone professional, the 1980s war intents and purposes. And New Zealand was heading that way. You can't even pretend for amateurism, let alone amateurism, when you're asking players to, you know, jump on a plane for matches all the time at provincial level. So change was coming, and but when it came, it came so suddenly because it was basically South Africa, New Zealand, Australia. They were fearful that Kerry Packer was going to sign all their players, so mm. they signed up rapidly. They wanted to protect their players, but but the Northern Hemisphere wasn't ready, and the South and the Southern Hemisphere didn't bring the Northern Hemisphere into professionalism on the same model. So mm. all of a sudden, then in sort of England, you had clubs. France, you had clubs. Wales carried on with clubs because, um, you know, the, the, the Northern Hemisphere unions, uh, the Scottish Union were, were debt-ridden, redeveloping um, Murrayfield. The English Union were debt-ridden, redeveloping um, Mur- and Twickenham. 
mm. and the WIU were about to host a World Cup and rebuild Cardiff. So those are the last thing those unions wanted was to contract players. And it just carried on. And then these structural faults were built in, you know, North v. South, Club v. Country, Tier 1 v. Tier 2. And what's happened in Wales is just kind of a microcosm of that. Mm -hmm. Because looking at where things were, where we were in 1995, and I think back then towards the end of the decade, the second half of the 90s, I recall there were stories in the press. Again, I, I was in secondary school at the time, and it was a long time ago now, but my memories of it were there was a lot of talk. There was a chance for four Welsh clubs to join the English Premiership. That then didn't happen, and I recall the 1998-99 Rebel season. I do remember that very well, when Cardiff and Swansea didn't play within the Welsh system for a season. They played friendly matches week in, week out against English clubs. And my memories of that was it started off very well, and there were lots of very competitive matches early on, in the season but as particularly after Christmas when injuries set in and they had their own priorities focusing on European competitions and the English league as well and international duty and everything that went with it um, they they started fielding the English club started fielding second tier teams yeah. and, and there were lots of very strong victories for Cardiff and Swansea against them and it was clear that wasn't sustainable either but then we, we got into the early 2000s and it was clear by that stage that Wales couldn't support nine professional teams and concerns had been raised about the number of clubs playing at the top level with regards to Wales not producing enough good quality players to sustain nine clubs and good quality players who played for clubs that failed to qualify for the Heineken Cup as was missed out on the experience of playing in such a tournament and in addition to that the club game in Wales had struggled to cope financially since everything you've just alluded to, the events of the early 1990s, even before 1995. And there was also an issue then. Clubs were struggling for support. With reigning champion Swansea, they attracted a crowd of just 932 for a home game in, against Pontypridd in late 2001. But the merging of... I remember the controversy. I was in sixth form college by this stage. The merging of the clubs to create um, five regions, as was at the time was hugely controversial for fairly obvious reasons, really. There was talk, should Cardiff and Pontypridd merge? I think that was one of the options. Well, anyone who knows anything about the people in Pontypridd and the rugby fans in Pontypridd, they ain't going to support Cardiff. That is not going to happen. Um, so your memories of that period then, now, I remember there were various options on the table. At that particular point, and if you just focus on that point for the time being, please, yeah. what do you think went wrong at that stage? Well, the problem was the essential point is it was it was eight two years it was eight years too late. It's a lot harder to do what needs to be done in two thousand and three than it was in nineteen ninety five because you'd added a whole new host of problems. Um, we knew in nineteen ninety five that the South Africans, New Zealanders were running with four to six teams, and Wales were trying to run ten. And mm. as, the as the cost base was driven up by England and France, it made it unsustainable. So by 2001, 2002, the game's falling apart financially. You've got to consolidate. But you've got all these new vested interests who've invested in pre-existing club businesses that have got their own turf. They now want to protect. They've got their own contracts protecting them. I think you know, the, the, the key is in the question you ask, you know, the nonsense of creating provinces or regions through clubs or standalone clubs, because unless you're part of that club, you ain't going to support that club as your region. Mm -hmm. Bonaparte fans were never going to support um, 
any team nice that looks or smells like Cardiff RFC. It's not disrespectful. It, you see in football, you say, well, we, we can only afford one professional football club in South Wales. So Swansea, Newport fans, we're closing down Newport and Swansea, you're downgrading it to a meaningless level. Please go and support Cardiff City from now on. Hmm. It doesn't mm. happen. It doesn't work. Ponapool fans were never going to support a, a Monmouthshire side or a Gwent side that they thought was Newport RFC. And the reality was that Swansea, Fenechley, Cardiff and Newport, they didn't have the fan bases to sustain, um, you know, the, the 8,000 strong regional crowds regularly. Mm. You've got to be winning all the time to get anywhere near that. And the Welsh teams haven't. And then, so what ended up? Well, well, we we left out the northern half of the country, so we Welsh rugby gains almost no revenue at all at the professional level from North Wales. Mm. The South Wales valleys got alienated, mm. and so the only valleys people who really bought in were mostly the people who already Cardiff or Newport or Llanelli or Swansea or Nice were their club, and then we compounded that because because we had one too many regions. Um, the, the Celtic Warriors were the one that cracked first. One was always going to crack it, and turned out to be them. And that alienated most of the Bridgend and Ponder Pre fans, as you say. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because I, that, that season you're talking about, 2003 2004, the Celtic Warriors, they went bust. And that was a merger of Pontypridd and Bridgend. And they went bust. And, and in all the years since, 16 years have now passed, there has not been. A, a full-time professional rugby region in the Welsh Valleys. And that is really, yeah. to a very large extent, where your core support is. And yeah. the, the, the fans there are alienated. Now, I know that, because um, I know the Ponapreed area well, that um, Sardis Road, even at the semi-professional level, they still get good crowds of loyal people who are going there week in, week out, even to watch semi-professional yeah. rugby. But it's outrageous that here we are 16 years on and they've had no professional rugby in Welsh rugby's heartland, in effect. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you're always going to have the you know, the, the position that was what you know. Um, how do you how do you keep the valley support? Because there wasn't really club sides in the valleys that could you could build a an identity around. So it was always going to have to be regionalism. And the question would be, well, do you have a region in the valleys and another region along that sort of eastern Glamorgan, Gwent coast from Cardiff to Newport? Or do you kind of divvy them up and you have a region based in Newport, but not with certainly not with a Newport RFC identity where you can marry kind of like, you know, the greater commercial strength in the city with the core support in the valleys and similar in Eastern Glamorgan where you've got all the commercial side of Cardiff, but then you've got the rugby fanaticism of the mid district. Because the heartlands of Welsh rugby have always been the South Wales Valleys. It's not obvious to work out why. There's always been less less competition from other social pastimes to do that. You're in Cardiff, if you grew up in Cardiff, the amount of options you've got on your doorstep from ice hockey to football to everything else is there. In the South Wales Valleys, um, the options locally were much more limited. So rugby penetrated deeper. 
Well, it's like even a member of my family who um, sings in the male voice choir. He tells me, uh, well, he quite often, actually, it's not a one-off. He, he quite often watches uh, Welsh Rugby Internationals in a clubhouse near where they rehearse in their choir. And yeah. um, he says, yeah. you know, if, if, you're in a, if you're watching a Wales game there and Wales lose, it's like a church when you leave. It is silent. The yeah. people there are, are just so passionate and so connected. I'm not saying there aren't people like that in Cardiff, but there's an intensity about it in the valleys. They live and breathe rugby. And to deny yeah. people in the Welsh Valleys, their own side, I think has been one of the key errors of all this. But can you tell us, please, in layman's terms, and you can probably articulate this better than I can, what is the difference between the regional model we see in Wales and the club rugby system in England? Because I've known for some time that that the system in England has had its problems, but the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic, has really brought those issues into the forefront. What is the difference between the Welsh model and the English model? (laughs) That's a difficult one. The easiest way to look at it is to compare the New Zealand model with England and then very briefly and then try and explain how the Welsh is kind of a hybrid fusion of both. So in New Zealand, you it's the old first class clubs. They're a provincial structure. Well, they couldn't afford 27 professional provincial teams. So the, provin- the, pro- the provinces were kind of initially there would be a lead, five lead provinces as they divvied the country up. Mm. And then over time, um, Auckland Blues, when the Auckland was dropped, just to reflect the Blues is the top of the country. The middle of the North Island was Waikato Chiefs. And then in 1999, they just dropped all the provincial names. That's just the Chiefs. Down in Wellington, the south of the North Island, you had the Hurricanes based. And then the South Island, you had the one team based in Canterbury, the Crusaders, another team based in um, Dunedin, the Highlanders. You've got those five franchises they're not in the past they're completely new creations the current the, all the old provinces fight out the provincial level which is semi pro stroke, stroke pro borderline and um essentially controlled by new zealand rugby union yes they've got private investors in but they could we can move players around they control the wage structure in england and france you went the other way and then um england the english rugby union hesitated private owners bought clubs like John Hall at Newcastle was the famous first one mm. and they contracted the players so the RFU lost control of the clubs and I'm giving the players and now they have to pay to access the players effectively mm. now Wales is a horrible hybrid fusion at the end of um, 2003 because we start we carried on for clubs then we called the clubs to five we're down to four we called them regions entirely privately owned they were they were there until the, the, the WIU had to bail out the um bail out the dragons and take them on so they're privately owned so they're not they're not really representative teams they're continuation of old businesses old clubs they've changed identity like a lot of Newport fans would no would will no longer support the dragons because of the clean break but they haven't really gone what Burla Jackman was trying to do they haven't made that progress they needed in the valleys despite slowly improving so when people say England's got a club model France got a club model South Africa, New Zealand have got regional models. Wales is like a no man's land. It's the hybrid. And since Martin Phillips came in in 2015, he's been very, very slowly moving Wales more and more towards a proper regional model. So you see things like salary banding, which is something from the regional model. Um, the WIU now pay 80% of the wages, so it's de facto central contracts. Mm. That's from the regional model. 
play in Wales, to play for Wales. That's historically been a regional model, though England have tried that as well to a certain extent, and, and they'll take the legal risk. So Wales is kind of a, you know, it's an unloved hybrid between the two models. It's not New Zealand regional rugby or Irish provincial rugby. It's not English or French club rugby. It's something in between that's unique, that nobody else has copied or ever will. I think the phrase you're looking for is a dog's dinner because that's that's yeah. certainly how it, how it comes across the way you described it. So based on what yeah. you've said then, where does Ireland fit in? Because obviously we see watching the European competitions how Irish teams have consistently performed well over the course of at least the last 15 years. And you know, I, the Irish regions have attracted big fans, but they've got a longer history, haven't they? So how what what's the Irish model? Where do they fit into all this? Well, it's... it's... Irish provincial rugby is about the only part of Irish history in its entirety where history is actually has proved helpful. Because Ireland <laughs> is a country where history is usually a, a nightmare. But in Ireland, the IRFU, the Irish Rugby Football Union, is essentially a union of clubs. Mm. But it's a union of clubs through provincial branches. So you have these pre-existing Ulster, Leinster... Um, Connaught and uh, Munster branches. And before we turned professional, um, they'd play the occasional game. There was, was an inter-province competition and the teams, those teams would generally tend to play the tourists, like the All Blacks, the Springboks, the Wallabies. In the day, there was proper tourists where, you know, you mm. tour for several months. You play, you wouldn't just play one test match. You'd play, you'd go around the country. Yeah. And what, what the Irish guys at the um in the mid night there were people in Ireland saying, well, you know, we should let the all Irish League the equivalent of the you know, the old first class clubs, WRU Premiership, we should use them as the as the um the commercial vehicle. And it's one of those cases where the guys running the IRFU, particularly Tom Keenan and Sid Miller, it was kind of like, no, don't do anything mm. stupid. We've got these pre existing vehicles for um playing these tourists and this final step up to test rugby. There's four of them. Every it covers the entire country. That's the vehicle you use for commercial, commercially professionalised rugby. And teams like Munster, you know, Leinster, whatever your club allegiance, people always bought into the province. It was an additional allegiance. Mm. So you, know, you weren't asking somebody to support a, as a province or a region a team that you saw as your old club rival. I, I think the point you're making here is that the connection that the Irish people feel with their province, it's not contrived yeah. in yeah. the way the Welsh regions were contrived, yeah. if, if you like. It, there's an authenticity to it in Ireland that just, and people feel a, a, a personal loyalty and a personal passion towards their region yeah. in a way they just don't in Wales. And I, I think yeah. that's at the heart of yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. But looking at where we are then in terms of OK, you've explained, articulated well the different structures that exist in different parts of the world and the, the dog's dinner hybrid we ended up with in Wales, which, which suited absolutely nobody. But there's an even more fundamental point, and that is if the main objective, one of the main objectives anyway, of creating these Welsh regions was for the Welsh regions to be more competitive in European competitions, as the years went by, that did not happen. Because I think there were, well, I know, there was year after year where as soon as we came back after Christmas, Welsh interest in the Euro main European competition was pretty much over. Yeah, well, it, it's, you know, yeah, so 
it's cause and effect, isn't it? Sort of the actions have consequences. And, you know, so Irish fans see Leinster or Munster as mini versions of Ireland, whereas with the best will in the world, nobody in Ponapreve sees the Blues as a mini version of uh, Wales. Or <laughs> it's just, you know, so you haven't got that buy-in and, and you're already struggling because you've got smaller crowds, you've got less money. Um, if you have smaller crowds, sponsors see that, so they pay less sponsorship or they don't sponsor. And it's like this treadmill you're on and you just can't get off it. You're mm. just spiralling downwards. That One thing goes wrong, that knocks onto something else. And it's like we've had 17 years. And despite, you know, in fairness, given that his mandate is not to provoke a war, to try and ease things in the right direction, you know, Phillips has made some some improvements I and mean, I, I admire him for doing it but many would argue it's it's too little it's too late and um, given the market correction we're seeing now with rugby in paralysis and basically you know the regions are all going to fold unless the WRU loan them a lot of money because nobody else is going to loan them a, a lot of money um, we need to have a more fundamental reset rather than just trying to preserve what's never worked. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and all that is true. And we're going to talk about that in more depth in a moment, because this I don't think this particular issue needs to be looked at in isolation of Wales. We can see similar things happening elsewhere yeah. due to the pandemic. And well, I think what the pandemic has done is it's it's speeded up a process that was happening anyway. That's how I would interpret it. But I'll be interested to get your thoughts on that in a moment's time. But one of the big things that happened as we went into the 2000s and then into the 2010s is that a lot of Wales's leading players took big money offers to pay, play their rugby, their club rugby, outside of Wales. And Warren Gatland and, and people at the WRU emphasised time and again that it was important that the best Welsh players were, where possible, playing their, their rugby yeah. inside Wales. Tell me, uh, right? Take take fo- to use a football comparison. We know that the, the best leagues in the world, the the English Premier League, La Liga in Spain, Germany, maybe France and Italy, a little not quite at that level, but still pretty good. And players from all over the world, no matter what country you're from, if if you're good enough, that's where you'll end up playing your club football. In rugby, there's a different approach. Why is it considered so important that the best Welsh players are playing their rug, their club rugby or regional rugby inside Wales? Why is there so much emphasis on that? I think there are several strands to that. I mean, certainly in the Gatland era, um, he he decided the best um, the best chances he had for Wales, certainly for the first half of his tenure, was to play a limited physical game aggressive defence under Sean Edwards and very fit and very physical. And to get that um, sort of system, what he needed to have that was to have lots of access to the players because rugby by its very nature is tactically a far more complicated game than than football. Mm-hmm. So, he needed, so he needed lots of time with the players to try and get them um playing the way he wanted them playing and you know he was it's no secret he was the first week they were in camp he'd basically be beasting them to try and get a physical sort of fitness edge over the the opposition because rugby is one of those sports where if you're fitter than the opposition even if you're more limited um you can do an awful lot of damage in the last 20 minutes if the yeah. opposing side is fading and you ain't um it's, it's far more easy to take advantage of the opponent in rugby, in rugby than many other sports. So he wanted control of the, to get the players in Wales to have 
control over them um, because the regions are beholden. They've always been beholden to the WIU because basically in international rugby, Test rugby is the financial engine driver. Mm. So um, uh, Wales has got to be good um, to, to, to maximise the income from the population, especially with the region so weak. And then that feeds back. So the, the driving force for Gatland was we want the players in Wales. We don't want players going back to clubs in the middle of Six Nations and getting injured because we've got to release them for the, in the middle of February. Whereas if you got them in Wales, you can do an agreement with the regions. They stay in Wales camp. They don't get back. They're conditioned with the Welsh regions. So they hit their peak at the international windows rather than off in France, playing a ridiculous number of games, picking up injuries and mm. getting flogged to death because a French club owner has paid an awful lot of money because you've got to get a premium to get a player to leave your leave his country to come to yours. Yes. Was, yeah. And, then, and, and t- tell me then, obviously my my attitude as a layman not knowing all the ins and outs of exactly what's gone on, if I was good enough to play rugby to that standard, in theory, my attitude would probably be, look, I'm going to look at what's in the best interest of myself and my family, knowing I've got a short career and knowing I could get injured at any time. I would say, look, playing for Wales is very important to me and I'm going to make myself available. But first and foremost, I, I need to make money from this. I know that might sound mercenary, but when your career is short and you've got a mortgage to pay and yeah. you don't know what your prospects are going to be when you get into your early 30s and you could get injured at any time and the whole thing comes to an end anyway, I can understand the the appeal of, of people wanting to maximise their, their income. But So how does, say, a good contract with a French or an English club compare to the money a player would get for playing for Wales. What's the comparison in terms of the money they would make? Oh, it varies. It's, you know, it's sort of, you've always got to take a pinch of salt to figures you hear in the press anyway. But mm. um, basically, you, know, you if you go to France, England, if you're at the top end, you will earn more. There's no doubt about that. But, mm. and it's a big but, if you're, at the, if you're in Wales, you're in the top echelon, you're, you're a real top international you'll get looked after so there's a far more chance there's far greater chance that your career will last several more years longer rather than being grinding out playing in the french top 14 from mid-august to mid-june you get looked after you play less matches so there's less chance of injury mm. there's more chance of you earning for more match fees for playing for wales are significant so that narrows the gap um mm. but even you know but even then, it wasn't quite enough in many cases. But since Wales have said, right, um, you play in Wales to play for Wales unless you've got 60 caps. Mm. You know, the exodus has been very, very limited. We haven't lost any really big players we really didn't want to lose. And as long as that works, they won't change the system. The players that leave are the ones that really, you know, they they think the international days are over, that international days are never going to quite come. Mm. Or, you know, they're a great player, but the hunger isn't there to play international rugby. And, you know, perhaps someone in that category would be um, sort of like um, Owen Williams, who's now going off to um, Japan. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you mean by that. But it isn't the other side to that particular coin that if you are playing amongst very good players and good coaches amongst a, a top English or French club, that, that they are that you're therefore surrounded by people you can learn from and they can also improve your game in some ways? Yes, but obviously um, 
certainly with Gatland running Wales, um, you know, that, that's about as good an environment you're going to get. Because he was mm-hmm. a huge fan of, you know, professional environment and, you know, um, coaching fitness. So the gap, you know, the gap narrows there. And I guess the, the big issue is for the, the really best players is one, you know, they, they've always grown up wanting to play for Wales. Mm. You know, nobody grew up as a small child wanting to play for Toulouse or yeah. um, So you, you've always had that emotional um, side there. And then if you stay in Wales, if you're a really top player, um, you think, well, you know, I can, st- I, can, I can stay in Wales and then I'll build a profile, become a national sort of hero, and then I'll just step off the rugby pitch and then I'll be a, a post-rugby career in the broadcasting or the media or with certain sort of you know, major Welsh companies. Mm. Whereas if you go off to France, you get the short-term you know, money, but you, you're kind of out of sight, out of mind. And sure. especially if you turn your back on test rugby, which is the... It's always been rugby shop window. Yeah, yeah. And, and this issue of money then, because obviously I'm afraid that's the heart of everything really when yeah. push comes to shove. There's, as I understand it, uh, there, there's three real ways you can make money. One is by selling your broadcast rights. The other is by ticket sales. And, well, the third is by advertising in various forms. And that comes, and sponsorship, and that comes as a consequence of how many people are ultimately watching you on television. Yeah. Um, now, we're in a situation now where the regional TV contract, the live rights, are with Premier Sports. And I have looked up their viewing figures, and I have to say, I don't know whether you've looked these up. I know I sent them to you some time ago, some months ago. Yeah. But but looking at this, this is really, really depressing stuff, I'm afraid. Let's take Saturday the 4th of January. I don't know because this information wasn't available. I use something called the Barb website. Barb is the organisation that, that monitors viewing yeah. figures for all British television channels. And on, they didn't tell us the match on the Barb website, but on Saturday, the 4th of January, Premier Sports 1 either showed Dragons against Ospreys or Zebra against Cheetahs. They didn't say which match on the Barb website, but whichever one it was, they got 21,600 viewers in the whole of the UK, right? <laughs> now, that's appalling. Now, on the Friday night, I'm afraid this gets worse, that, again, they showed either Blues against Scarlets or Ulster against Munster. Um, either way, 12,500. On the Saturday night, later in the evening, they showed Edinburgh against Southern Kings, 9,500. Now, I'm not including there. What that doesn't tell me is how many are watching in the Republic of Ireland. But you can see for yourself, these are appalling viewing figures. There is now, here we are, we're in season two of this new contract, I think. There is now, there was already a disconnect between, beyond the hardcore fans, the, the casual fans, if you like, and the Welsh regions, it's just out of sight, out of mind now. It's tucked away on Premier Sports, and there's just a complete disconnect. These viewing figures are consistently appalling. I vaguely remember you um, sending um, me the figures and asking for my sort of views as somebody closer, um, close to the rugby action at the moment, if I perhaps put it that way. I mean, Mm. I'm not sure if those covered every conceivable way of watching the sport on any platform in the UK, but um, even if they aren't, um, those are still pretty um, pretty grim reading. I mean, we saw what what happened in cricket when it it took it off um, terrestrial TV shortly after that 2005 Ashes series, Mm. and public interest has just plummeted. It's the same in 
the same with rugby. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, there is probably some people watching on S4C. The cynics would say it's the only people watching any programs on S4C is when they have, um, um, they play the the, the Saturday evening or a Friday evening live match on mm. um, S4C. But the figures are dreadful, and it 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 fans out because if nobody's watching at the ground, and very few people are watching on TV. It's not just that those income streams are poor. The mm. sponsors, the advertisers, you know, they're looking at these figures. And, you know, so there's a, a multiplier effect that it suppresses what they're prepared to pay because, by definition, the more the more exposure they get, um, the more they're prepared to pay. Mm. Mm. Well, yeah, yes. well, that, that, that's, that's how advertising works. You know, they, they know, if, you know if, you, if you've got your logo on a shirt sponsor or you're paying for an advertising board, and you're thinking, hang on a minute, look at just how few people are watching this. Why should I pay anything like as much? It's the same principle with newspapers. One of the reasons newspapers are in trouble is they make the bulk of their income from adverts inside the newspaper rather than actual people buying physical copy. But they know if the circulation is halved in the last five years, they ask, why should I pay so much for the advert? And therefore, the newspaper's making a lot less through advertising. Yeah. And it's, it's, this, this is the same principle. But these yeah. figures are so low Knowing yeah. how much it costs, and you know, I've worked in television in the past. I've done a lot more radio, but I have worked in television. Know, knowing how much it costs to get an outside broadcast unit to a match, uh, put, I don't know, eight to ten cameras around the ground and so forth, employ commentators, technical staff. The cost of that, as well as actually buying the rights, all costs money. Surely the goodness, with as figures as low as this, even Premier Sports are wondering, was it even worth us buying the rights? Because so few people are watching. Well, I mean, you just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not okay, obviously, with the Premier Sports model. I mean, I, they're an Irish company, so I suspect a lot of their focus is on the Republic of Ireland. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure what their expectations um, are of uh, from South Wales, but those viewing figures are, as you said, pretty grim. And mm. uh, there's not, you know, they, they alone don't justify anyone um, paying much money. Yeah, yeah. And we've also got something looming over us at the moment. On, on, and everything you said, by the way, about cricket is spot on, because I, I'm a big cricket fan. And the, the, I remember the way that not just England, but the whole of the UK went that, that afternoon when England won the Ashes. Oh. It, 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 I'm not saying the country came to a standstill, but it did kind of feel a bit like that. And it led the, the six o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news that night. It was the lead story and it felt like a national celebration. When England won the Ashes four years later, 2009, after four years of it on Sky Sports, it wasn't anything like the same impact. And now cricket, you look at the viewing figures, if they get a couple of, if Sky Sports get a couple of hundred thousand people watching, yeah. they're having a good day. Similar thing with boxing. I think back to the 90, early 1990s when I was a young child, the likes of Chris Eubank, Nigel Benn, Michael Watson, the early Joe Calzaghe oh. fights, Prince Nassim Hamed, they all fought on primetime ITV in their early careers. Within a few years, the likes of Frank Warren took their stable over to Sky Sports. Public awareness of boxing by the end yeah. of the 90s was nothing like it was at the start of the decade. But with that thought in mind, we've got something looming over us now, and that is the very real possibility of the Six Nations going behind a paywall. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's all sh- short-termism because, you know, everybody in rugby for the last 25 years, instead of sitting back and putting out proper structures, everybody is just chasing the next the next commercial deal at every level because there's an arms race. And, you know, sort of it's working in a sense that, you know, um, 
Um, you had a situation where the English clubs went to Sky and then they went to BT Sport, and you know they was you know BT Sport seems to be get, losing interest and quite happy for the the next renewal to go out to tender, which is always a sign broadcasters want to reduce what they're paying. It's going across to rugby because as non-test rugby has developed a cost base which is inherently loss making. Mm. The clubs are asking for more from the unions. The unions have got their own expensive international setups where they're trying to get every edge they can from cryo chambers to world class coaches. Um, mm. They're probably under pressure from the certain types of politicians to develop the women's game. Mm. Um, so you've got all these things. Sort of the Welsh regions are desperate for money from the WRU. So all of a sudden, you've got all these pressures come in. And then I'm thinking, well, you know, there's, you know, there's Sky or BT Sport or wherever, Google, Amazon, whoever comes in, are prepared to pay more. You're very tempted because the, the people in charge have got to solve the problems now. If they're creating a bigger problem 15, 20 years down the road for the sport, that's what one of my clients would call SCP, somebody else's problem. The current yeah. bureaucrats are long gone. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you articulated a, a good point there, and that is that all sports governing bodies, it doesn't matter what sport you are, have to make a decision when it comes to TV rights of the amount of money the likes of Sky and BT can give you and pump into the game and the exposure free-to-air television yeah. can give you, albeit yeah. with a lot less money. Now, in, the, in cricketing terms, the big advantage of the Sky contract is that a huge amount of money went into grassroots cricket in terms of developing uh, academy level and even at local club level, um, uh, doing up clubhouses up and down Britain and better facilities I I even at village level. The, the, the downside, even there, though, there's, there's even a, a, a downside to that in that the number of people in the last 15 years playing club cricket across Britain has halved due to the lack of awareness and the lack of prominence yeah. cricket now has. So even though they've probably got better facilities than they would have had in the past, the lack of general awareness is filtering yeah. through, and that's very, very sad. Um, and, and so that that's the danger then. And, and the same thing applies now with, with this renewal of the Six Nations contract. It's a battle between free-to-air's exposure and the big money Sky or BT yeah. could throw at it. Yeah. Cash up front or out of sight, out of mind. Mm. Mm. That, that, that's the risk and of course since then we've had you know that you know the unions were looking towards you know we desperately need more money that, that was the beginning of the year and since since then the entire the entire model such a rugby goal model has completely financially imploded because of covid19 so we're we're now going to have the, the biggest you know, a market correction that was coming anyway has suddenly been super fueled because we've got Certainly, professional non-test rugby, all income streams have been completely shut down in the middle of the season. This was a sport that was already operated long term, with costs were greater than revenue, and benefactors would have to cover losses at the end of the year or unions from test rugby and union models. So you were already in trouble with no cash reserves. And suddenly your revenue streams have been turned off. And now the unions are desperate to, to restart and desperate um, to have at least some sort of reasonable size crowd with social distancing. Because otherwise they can just see before that they can see everything below them starting to fall apart.
Well, this is this is where I, I wanted to go next. And the one word that's on my mind now is England, because even before we went into lockdown, we saw the situation, obviously what went on in Saracens with the salary cap yeah. scenario and everything there. Yeah. But we have really seen during the, the months of lockdown now how England has been overextending itself and not living within its means. How bad are things in the English premiership structure at the moment? Oh, it's awful. At least four or five years ago, you look at the 12 clubs, and I think in those days, four, Northampton, Leicester, Gloucester, and Exeter, were still breaking even or better, even before this um, avalanche hit them. Um, only Exeter was still in the black. All the other, well, 11 clubs in the Premiership, plus the one that's always loaned to the Championship, because there's 13 clubs in the cartel, and one always goes down and comes back up, and no one goes down. Um, but you know, it, it's it's you know you talk about you know, imposed in, imposed pay cuts. You know mm. sometimes you know with you know, an invite to employment lawyers and agents everywhere to cause trouble. You know the old joke. You know the, the major reason people don't stay with the English clubs is because by the time they get to the judgment. The club will have folded under the litigation. It's that bad. Mm. Um, you know, Bristol have got Stephen Lansdowne, and, and he seems happy to chuck money at them. Um, but for most clubs, they were already in a situation where they were loss making, and they, you know they had so-called benefactor debt fatigue. That you know, chairman and supporters were sick of writing out big checks every year, and um, to cover losses with no chance of winning a tournament. That basically Saracens and Exeter were fighting over every year. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a game in England, certainly, and, and I'm not saying it's exclusive to England by any means, but it was a game that was living well beyond its means. And yeah. the trouble with benefactors is that the, the big danger is that they either run out of money themselves or they just, like a child loses interest in its toys eventually, they lose interest in, in their club and have other priorities for their money and that life just moves on for them, you know? So as, as a, a long-term sustainable thing, relying very heavily on a benefactor is never a good idea because of those fact, you know, those factors, they could lose interest at any time. Um, so, where do you think? Obviously, I'm seeing headlines and I'm seeing arguments and I'm seeing stuff on social media. Things are very, very bad in England at the moment. Where do you think they're going to go in the weeks and months ahead? Oh, it's, you know, it's trying to work out what the English will do is it's always very difficult. The RFU didn't take charge of the game in 1995. They clearly have no appetite for it now, particularly this model. If, if the RFU had taken charge in 1995, there may have been four or six franchises within a few years in a British or European league. They've got no interest in that. Um, and, you know, um, I think there's some, sort of, there's some sort of clause in the payment contract between the clubs and the RFU. And, you know, I think it was an eight-year contract between 2016 and 2024. And that is shortly coming to the halfway point where there's a readjustment mechanism. So the RFU funding will go down. Um, mm. The clubs are desperate to play their own competitions to conclusions. So you could see there'd be a big argument with the RFU over your know, relief because the RFU is desperate to play more tests. Mm. So, mm. you know, I think, I think, you know, you know, the only way something happens in England that keeps them going without casualties there's some sort of deal where the RFU says, OK, let us play these tests and we'll give you even more money. But, mm. of course, the RFU have got a lot of mouths to feed and every 
pound it gives to um to the, you know, the Premiership clubs, it's you know, it's money that hasn't got to spend elsewhere. So mm. I mean, it all really depends how this pandemic pans out. But the, everybody is so desperate to play matches and play matches in front of crowds. But the question is, will the crowds turn up? Because rugby, particularly because it's made such a mess of things over the last twenty-five years across the globe, it's got quite an aging demographic. Now, this this is something I again, this is something that's been on my mind for a little while, because I think even here in Wales, everything we talked about, about what went on in the 2000s into the 2010s, lots of other things were happening in society around about that time in South Wales. We saw the rise of Swansea City Football Club into that. They had a good run in the Premier League and maybe back there again before too much longer. Cardiff City have had two spells in the Premier League in that time. We've seen how young people are. They've got new attractions, whether it's social media they're doing this they're doing that there's things that are around now that weren't around when i was growing up in the 1980s throughout the 1990s there's all sorts of entertainment and options and ways to spend your time that simply didn't exist in those days and it is noticeable i'm afraid you've got this aging demographic um six or seven thousand people at the liberty stadium for an ospreys game that isn't sustainable um but i would also point out something else and something that concerns me and that is I don't want to sound too much like a snob when I say this, but the demographic of person who's going to the Principality Stadium for both Welsh Internationals and the Judgment Day Pro 14 thing they have every year. And I went to Judgment Day about maybe four years ago now. And what I noticed was that people had paid their tenor to get in. And there were a lot of people who were there as just a sort of day-long drinking session, barely paying any attention at all to the rugby. They were not rugby fans, by and large, I was surrounded by. They were people, they'd been to the bars of Cardiff beforehand. They were going back there afterwards. They were having conversations among themselves about things that had nothing to do with rugby. And and there was just people just getting more and more drunk. And also, a friend of mine who's a steward at Welsh Internationals, he has said to me, uh, he's been a steward at the stadium for about eight or nine years now. He said that he would say the last three or four years, there's been a bit of a nasty edge to it on times in, in terms of just how drunk the people are. Not so much the fact that they're drunk, but their behavior. And he said it, it, there's a nasty edge to it now. So I know they're paying 80, well, more than that, 90 quid a ticket beyond that sometimes. But is is the atmosphere of it putting off genuine rugby fans now? Oh, it's, it's turning turn to the Wales one first. It's kind of is the is 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 which is the cart, which is the horse. I think the expense of the matches is deterring lots of traditional fans because the time you pay for a couple of tickets, you know, family, you know, traveling to Cardiff, drinks, meals, it's a very expensive day out. Mm. So I. I think in many ways that's that the W have got to sell the tickets and it's a different kind of person who is now picking up many of the tickets and adding a lot of the drunkenness and edge to the Welsh matches. As regards Judgment Day, anybody in the regions who thinks that's going to attract more season ticket holders to any substantial degree is in cloud cuckoo land. It's not the people going from, you know, the club game who may be tempted, if they like the regions more or borderline, to go to, to, to finally buy in. It's just a drunken pee up for most people there. Mm. Mm. They'll go. They'll go to the 
it's easier to get tickets because it's not a full sell out there cheap so if mm. you spend a 10 or 15 pounds or whatever you get the the judgment day tickets for that you know compared to like 80 100 pounds for a test ticket that's mm. a lot of drinking with a lot of drinking um money um you've got two matches back to back you can drink at your seat um so yes wru do the comp do it take the money in milk as much as you can from the day but if you think judgment day is leading anywhere in terms of crowd growth um no chance like you said the liberty stadium six to seven thousand well that's usually the attendance figure you know including all the freebies that are given out and nobody turns up and you know the season ticket holders included in that figure even if he's on holiday in benedorm or at a wedding in kent mm, mm, yeah so, it, it, the actual, yeah the actual crowd the actual crowds are considerably lower than a lot of official attendances at many Welsh regional matches. Yeah, because the, the problem, the way I would see it is that if, if I was a rugby fan living in the valleys and knowing what I know about the sort of atmospheres inside the stadium and the problems with antisocial behaviour, I would probably choose to watch a Wales Rugby International in, I mentioned, member of my family singing in a choir in, the, in a clubhouse surrounded by other rugby fans i know i'm safe i know yes we'll have a bit of banter we might have a bit of a sing song whatever but there won't be any nastiness and then i can go home you know i'd, I'd save a fortune in money as well of course do, doing it that way yeah. and also if if i was to take if i had young children i wouldn't want to take them to the principality stadium knowing what i know about the issues with antisocial behavior at wales internationals and indeed at judgment day uh, so you, you you know it yes they they, uh, they have to sell it out and yes the WRU relies on people paying their 90, 95 quid yeah. to see a Welsh international or paying their tenor to go to Judgment Day. But it is putting off a more sort of discerning rugby demographic and is not attracting long-term fans. That That's how I see it. So let me put some, some final questions to you, if I may, because I'm conscious of the time. Do you think there'll ever be a British league? I would never say never, but it's very, very difficult. You know, the Pro 14 has expanded into Italy, South Africa. So you've got contracts there. You've got private equity have come into the Pro 14 and the English League. Well, obviously, their real, their real objective is trying to bundle more TV rights together to get on with the premium by selling some paywall broadcaster, whether it's your online or Sky or BT Sport, trying to sell them everything and getting a premium but giving them basically a, a, a you know a packaged monopoly mm. um, but, but again that doesn't help you with the british league because you know they value the english league at twice the, twice the value of the celtic league so but is that the reality based on what we know that's going on in england at the moment oh well you know it's it's, it's it's not a question of you know whether it it reflects what's going on in England. What what the English clubs will say is, well, why do we why do we want to get into a league with you um, unless we're going to receive twice as much money from the TV broadcaster as you? And then the Welsh and Irish say, well, if you get twice as much money from the broadcaster as us, you're going to completely dominate that league so why what's in it for us we're better off going as we are especially as the welsh scottish irish teams they are very much seen as feeder teams for the national test team because that's you know 
there's not much money outside of test rugby in Wales, no. Scotland or Ireland. Where there is some in England, but yeah. they, they've gone too far because they've allowed the cost base out of control so that even their greater revenues are being swallowed up um, on play of inflation. Yeah, yeah. So I understand there's, there's actually a conflict then, isn't there, between the Welsh model where the onus is really on developing the Welsh national team and that's the priority. It's a totally different model in England where there's a different set of priorities then and and we can see that. But I do think, I take on board everything you say and I'm inclined to agree with you on principle. However, I do think that the events of the last few months have thrown everything up in the air to such an extent that I don't know how the cards are going to land or where we're going to be in six months' time. But I do think this pandemic has speeded up a process that was going on anyway and the chickens are going to come home to roost in England quite soon. So yeah. we've but talked ne- about... Sorry, never say never, but, mm. um, you know, it's probably going to get... It's going to have to get an awful lot worse with spikes coming back and rugby being closed down again mm. before the English mindset is probably... Even at club, club level mindset really starts to get worried. Yes, yeah, I, I go, go along with that. And we've talked about how the Welsh regions have not achieved one of their main objectives which is to be more competitive in european competitions but with that in mind how strong and competitive do you feel the pro 14 as a whole is i'm always wary of talking down the pro 14 because because, you know i if i try and do that i'll turn up i'll turn on my twitter feed after your um um after this podcast is published (laughs) there'll be irish guys saying well Thank God the Pro 14 isn't very competitive because the Welsh province, the Welsh regions often can't compete with the, the Leinster second team anyway. Um, it's not, you know, it's, an, it's a different kind of league to the English league and the, the French league. It's less attritional, it's less physical, but it does put a premium on handling skills and ball skills. And you see the way you, the Irish and Welsh teams in particular um obviously you know Wales got a rocky start under pvac but everybody gets a, a yeah. free pass for a while but the yeah. welsh the welsh and irish teams are you know been competing well against england um so you've got to give it time but it's just like union run leagues are just a different you know a different a different animal they're less they're less attritional um, but they're there developing the skills for the the test team so mm. it depends what you really see the pro 14 is and as the welsh regions are not really achieving much as entities in themselves at least they are um or they have been providing the raw materials for gatland to work with and uh, go from there yeah and yeah we're going back to this difference in emphasis now and a different set of priorities the onus in wales is very much on developing the wales team and everything else secondary to that mm-hmm. whereas the english model well for better for worse and we're seeing the for worse side of it at the moment they are clubs with their own vested interests and yeah. that that's that's where the key difference is there uh, we you and i have talked for the best part of an hour now we've covered everything in quite a lot of depth yeah. This is this sort of discussion, the sort of discussion you and I are having now. There isn't much of this in the Welsh media. And one of the concerns I have is that the relationship between the Welsh media and the WRU is too close and too cosy. And there hasn't been enough scrutiny over the years 
of exactly what is going on at regional level and holding people to account and explaining to not just rugby anoraks, but the casual observer who might not go to every game, but might go a few times a season and will put it on on when it's on the television if they happen to be at home. Because those sort of fans are important as well. And the Welsh media, I don't think, has done enough to explain what is going on. And I feel that the relationship between the Welsh media folk, not all, there are exceptions to this, but there is there is a clique of people in the Welsh media who have too cosy a relationship with the powers that be in Welsh rugby, I felt. Jeepers, I could probably spend an hour just answering that question. So I'll try and be as brief as I can. Um, <laughs> I think I suspect, I'm a, I'll list some of the issues I think, and I suspect, um, without having discussed this with you before on Twitter or anything, I suspect you'll agree with many of them, is that um, when Welsh rugby turned professional, it went from just, you know, doing shamateurism, you know, rugby reports and getting them in the South Wales Echo that night. Um, um, you know, it, the nature of the business changed. So all of a sudden, you know, anybody... To understand Welsh rugby would have had to have a business understanding. And the lack of business understanding amongst the Welsh rugby media is just mm. frightening. I mean, talking about Wales, talking to Wales online, I mean, I've got a, a certain amount of respect for Andy Howell. He shoots from the hip and he knows, you know, I think he, 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 his gut instinct is usually right on most issues. Um, but obviously, he doesn't, he doesn't come from a business background. Sometimes the best rugby business articles they produce is when um the business correspondent um sean um sean barry occasionally will touch upon rugby but mm. there's all these other issues as well i mean you know welsh rugby media loses always loses talent to london so guys like paul reese stephen jones eddie butler went off to the national newspapers and talking about welsh rugby doesn't sell doesn't sell newspapers across the uk it's a niche market for south wales the western mail south wales echo the argus etc well they're all Uh, in decline anyway they're all in steep decline even in their own right sorry carry on yeah you've got the you've got the welsh sort of bubble issues that it's a, it's a narrow elite you know i think sometimes you get in trouble um you know off off the rugby topic when you make you make an observation on the crackach and the mob pile on you on twitter i mm. see that a couple of times um you've got you know it's now a very narrow top level field so you've got the wru and you've got the four regions mm. and you know sort of any journalist that asks too many awkward questions is always afraid that you know he'll be blackballed or his life will be made difficult. You've got the wider problems in journalism that it's not attracting much talent anymore. It's an industry that hasn't really come to grips with how to make money in the internet age. Well, so the- yeah, well, you, you know, because I know you've read it, I, I published a very long essay about the problems, not just in the Welsh media, but on the UK yeah. and the global media. And you've touched upon it there very well. There is um, obviously hardly anyone under the age of about 45 is buying newspapers even the older generation are turning away from them now uh, the South Wales Echo well the, the, their circulation figures have fallen well below the average for the UK wide decline of a local paper in the last five years the Western Mail is now just about below 10,000 in terms of uh, daily sales but this this is a this is a picture you see up and down the UK but it, it the yes. South Wales Echo decline in circulation has been quite steep and everything you've said there about the bias against understanding how business works 
And uh, you're right, because they, they don't not only do the journalists themselves not have business backgrounds or any experience of business, they don't seem to ha- know who to ask if they want these things explained to them. Yeah. And therefore, they can't articulate them to their readership or their audience. And you, you talk about the crack accent and, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I, I talk I talk about that a lot. But there is a sort of we go to the same dinner parties, we go to the same award ceremonies. There's a little bubble of people who see each other socially and they don't want to get on the wrong side of the wrong people. And we've seen, well, there are examples of this, and I know you know who I'm talking about, and this is quite a well-known example, of if certain people are outspoken, they very conveniently lose their media jobs soon afterwards because the the powers that be lean on the media organisations. It's all a little bit too cosy is what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I think we, I think you know, you're referring particularly to the Alfie thing years ago, I but um, yes. yeah, but like, but also, you know, you've got to know what questions to ask to really put them on the spot, and you know, um, and then, um, doing that can get you in unpopularity, and um, also providing providing solutions as the problems get worse and worse is also can also give unpopularity. I remember a few years ago, um. Peter Jackson these days of the rugby paper. Now, Peter is absolutely fantastic at seeing a problem. Mm. And I can remember that um, he did one about um, on Scrum 5, a little insert about asking Ponapri fans to um, support the Blues. And he absolutely went through the absolute demolished you know, the, the intellectual incoherence of the, even suggesting that as regionalism, asking those lot to support those guys down the A470. And then it's just getting interesting. And then it stops. That's mm. the end. Because he doesn't want the grief of saying, well, you know, these are possible solutions. Because all of a sudden he knows people will pile on him. Mm. So there are, you know, there are those, there are those issues as well. But as, as I always say, one, you know, so the state of Welsh rugby after twenty-five years of professionalism is an absolutely damning indictment of the Welsh rugby media, because you know things shouldn't have been allowed to get this bad over the, particularly over the first decade of professionalism, without the powers that be being absolutely shredded by mm. any functioning independent um, media. Well, there, there is a real, I'm going to use this word, there's a toxicity to it. And you end up, as you say, p- good people are living in fear of saying what they really think for fear yeah. of a pile on and, and repercussions for their careers and people not yeah. speaking to them anymore. That's not healthy. We should be able, even if we profoundly disagree, we should be able to say what we really think because in any democracy, that healthy, oh. open debate is, is, is a, can only be a good thing. And But there, there are also too many people with vested interests. And we've got this sort of cowed culture in the Welsh media where you mustn't say this, you mustn't say that, you mustn't upset so-and-so. Um, we, we don't want to fall out with the WRU because we want to hold on to the broadcasting contract and we want to make sure we've still got access to press conferences and, and, you know, everything like that. And you end up with this sort of cowed culture amongst the media where they're frightened of doing anything. They're frightened of falling out with the WRU. They're frightened of falling out with very influential people among the regions. They're frightened of falling out with the crack act. You know where it's going and it's not healthy. Yeah. And, and this, this, this really is, is in no small part a cause of the problem we now have in Welsh rugby. But I want to end because we've had a good hour now talking. I want to end on an optimistic note. A, a solution to this. Now, you're, you can't wave a magic wand and put everything right. But if I was to say to you, put you on the spot now, there's three things you can do to improve things. What would you go for? 
Are we talking Wales or globally? Answer that in any way you like. <laughs> right. Well, they've got to. They've got to resolve. Firstly, they've got to resolve those big structural issues. North, East, South, Clumsy country. We've got a bizarre scenario where international rugby is not. It's not got primacy everywhere, and it got these club models in France and England that damage countries outside of other countries by, you know, mass importing players who otherwise have got the domestic house in order. So at the great global level, you've got to deal with that structure and whether, you know, you know, whatever that takes, the RFU and the FFR have got to get control again of their um, domestic pyramid. Until that happens, there will always be conflict. Secondly, Wales, I mean, Wales, I mean, Oh, um, <laughs> it's despairing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We've got to get back from that. We've got to get back to 1995 and have a proper reset. Because even in this pandemic, the mindset of the WRU is let's try and preserve as much as we had when we came in. It's like, no, what we came in with was absolute rubbish. Mm. Um, we've got to um, get that sorted. Um, and it means, yes, there's got to be a region in North Wales. Now, the first region's got to be in North Wales because that's the separate market. You can mm. divvy up South Wales amongst what's left. But North Wales, you know, there's got to be a team up there because, you know, the geography of Wales, you know, nobody can earn money from North Wales and South Wales. It isn't going to happen. So mm. you need one of your four regions up there. Um, you've got to sort out your alienation in South Wales. I mean, you just look at them and it's like, well, the Scarlets and Ospreys are fighting for that same market around Greater Swansea, where I call the Port Talbot Neath and Eccly Triangle. That's the core market, even if it's got to interland out west. There's got to be some sort of rebuilding the rest, whether you say, right, the Dragons or the Blues will be one team and put a team in the valleys, or basically just do the, the vertical line and integrate the capital with Eastern Morgan Valleys or Gwent. Um, but there's just there's just not that sort of mindset in the WRU. They're quite happy to carry on as they are because they've got the control they need for their financial engine. They don't need the grief. The re- the regions are now almost totally subservient. So and, it's it's um, the men in black culture, yeah, then, is it? Yeah, is that what you're they, getting at? Yeah, well, it's off balance sheet. You know, all the regional fans always think, you know, the the WRU were always out to take them over. And it's like, well, no, there's lots of WRU just want control. Mm. They're not interested in identity or reform. All they want is the region subservient to the the, the action, the test team. And they're quite happy not to have them. The, the, the cost and the mess of clearing it up on the WIU's balance sheet. We'll just do enough to keep you alive and everybody focuses on test rugby, not regional rugby. Yeah. So it's those two. And then what if you can get those global structural faults done and you can in Wales, if you can sort out yeah, the hideous hybrid fusion of a mess in Wales, then third, then you can do a global calendar where people are competing on reasonably equal terms. Uh, you're not facing tired teams at the end of the season, starting playing against, you know, raw teams at the beginning of the season. And then you can start building, you know, building competitions outside the World Cup. And then, you know, um, making sure that, you know, rather than chasing um, 
pay-per-view TV, you have competitions that are attractive enough that you can, with a control cost base, you can keep the exposure for the most part on free-to-air TV because you've you've got lots of competitions that free-to-air broadcasters want, but you've got control of your costs. And it's not like, you know, right, I've got that contract. I, I give that money to the player and his agent. Where's the next contract? Because rugby has got to just get its competition sorted that maximise revenue. But just as importantly, it's got to control its costs. We've had 25 years of no cost control. And that affects the countries like Ireland, New Zealand. They can't control their costs if there's English and French clubs importing lots of their players. Mm. It spills out. So yeah. those would be my three things. One, deal with the structural faults that were allowed to build in 1995 never been addressed to reset the welsh regional game properly proper representative teams with buy-in central contracting full wage control but trying to but trying to be nothing try to be more than just you know incubators for the welsh team apart when there's no test matches and then third get the game sorted globally with competitions that you know there's not an endless meaningless series of friendies every november well, this has been a comprehensive discussion. We've covered a lot of ground here. I'm not, I'm not sure we've got all the solutions, but I think uh, we're heading in the right direction. And this is the sort of discussion we don't hear much of in the mainstream media. So my thanks to Geraint for his time. My thanks to you for listening. Join us again next time. Mm-hmm.